It's time for building the game. Building the game with Jason and friends. Tabletop game design. The the end of the episode that's when it technically ends hello and welcome to building the game a documentary podcast today is monday november 16th and you're listening to episode 442 as always i'm your host jason uh joined today by special guest game designer and developer lauren woolsey hey lauren how's it going hi jason it's great to be here I promise I don't do the podcaster voice the whole time. I just always like on Zoom. I love because I start to do it and then people get this look like, oh, is he going to do that the whole time? And like, <laughs> just I don't know. I, I like I like the podcaster voice. My <laughs> well, my thanks, friends, thanks. my friends say that um, I definitely have a different voice in regular conversation compared to podcast interviews. So that's fair. Yeah, I, I think like, I don't know. I, I find that I do it, too. Sometimes I still don't. I don't sound exactly the same but yes i always do the fake podcast voice in the beginning that way if you're a new listener you're like whoa legit this guy's this legit, legit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah nope not at all so <laughs> um so we are both uh michigan-based game designers uh, yeah go michigan yeah who realize that we have so many connections between people but have never actually met which is always funny to me um because I, I i know i've heard your name from multiple friends that we share especially in the grand rapids community yeah same um, same in the other direction too so it's it's entertaining for right. your guests for us to be meeting each other on a podcast right 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 you um i believe you do some designing with jonathan chaffer right i sure do yeah yes yes yeah i just we him and i have been working on a game recently so for the first time so yeah he's excellent a good yeah he's, he's an excellent he's designer smart. too yeah yeah he is yes yeah, he. Uh, I came to him with a game with some problems, and he promptly understood how to fix the problems, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> I try and work when, when I try when I figure when you're co-designing with someone to work with somebody who, um, you first of all that you get along well with, because obviously you're going to spend a lot of time working through problems. Pretty uh, nice. But I love right, yeah, yeah. But I love working with people who have different strengths than I do, um, because it really, you know, it just. It just makes the process a lot more fun. Uh, you can learn from them. And worst case, you still can get the game done because they know how to do the <laughs> things you don't. But I always try to learn along the way um, just because it's a process to learn. You know, I've been designing for eight years now. And uh, yeah, it's uh, I feel like I've learned a lot and still know not much. But <laughs> how long have you been designing for? Oh, good question. Um, my... My first full-fledged design, which is the one that I'll be pitching today um, towards the end, um, I started designing in graduate school because it seemed more fun than working on my dissertation. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> and I wasn't wrong. Um, and I got connected with um, the um, Game Makers Guild in Boston. And so it just kind of opened up a whole new world of Hey, I thought I enjoyed this. I definitely enjoy this. And I really like um, helping other people with their designs too. And so a lot of what I try to do now is help other games along um, rather than focusing on my own designs. That's awesome. That is uh, that is definitely a special skill to have to be able to do the developing side um, compared to the design side. It, it really takes a, um, for... For both feeling like game design, it really takes a surprisingly different tool set and mindset to do the opposite, I think at least. Yeah, definitely. And especially um, some of the situations I've, I've put myself in, so like Game Makers Guild meetings or um, 
Grubs meetings here in Grand Rapids, um, sometimes I'm playing somebody's game and I don't really know them that well. And so it's it's also kind of an interesting space to provide feedback to someone that you don't know how well they'll take it or what they're looking for necessarily if they don't um, set it up at the start. And so it's it's a very interesting space to um, to exist in. Yeah, for sure. The feedback in general is is it's it's hard to give good feedback, and it's even harder if the person's not receptive to feedback. Um, which I, I don't know what your experience has been, but for the number of people that will bring a game not to Grubs but to any game design, sure, unpub, yeah. whatever, uh, looking for feedback that they many times want less feedback than they think they want. <laughs> Right. Or or they what they really are hoping is that you think the same things that they do. And when that doesn't happen, they they kind of deflate a little bit. I think it does help um, being a college professor. I think there are skills that I have for giving feedback to students that are designed to help them um, progress and learn from mistakes and everything. And I think that does actually translate reasonably well Um in the field of games as well. Yeah, that, I mean, that makes total sense. You know, I mean, you're, yeah, yeah. I mean, I have to imagine that when you're giving students feedback on things, even though you're the teacher, they're probably not always 100% on board with said feedback. <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> so, that tends to be the case sometimes. And in really too, I, so I do, um, uh, part one of my, my other job outside of doing game design full time is that I do, um, uh, work with, with development and coaching and things like that with people. And, and yeah, I find that people taking feedback is hard and giving good feedback, uh, is really based around the way of giving feedback in a way that the people will hear it and that it will land in a way that will have impact that's right. not negative and help them make positive changes. And I, but I think we, I can't speak for you, but I know I've been on the side of you bring a game to someone, right? Um, and you sit down to play it and you want it to be as good as you think it is, or you want it to not have the problems you're afraid it has. Um, it's, I, it happens actually a lot when I play games with my wife, when I show her a game for the first time and I'm like, okay, I mean, cause like a lot of people's <laughs> wives, uh, you know, people like you can't have your wife give you feedback because she's going to be nice. I'm like, no, 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 you've not met my wife. Like, she's honest. <laughs> like she will play a game and be like, this is awful. Um, and she'll say this is, this isn't good. Um, in, in like, and that's, that's just how we communicate. It's not like she's being mean, right? Like I, I expect her to be direct, but still when I'm like, okay, I'm going to show you this game. And then she's like, these things don't work. And I'm like, that's what I didn't want you to say though. Right? Like, <laughs> I wanted them to work. To like. <laughs> yes. I willed them to work. Um, <laughs> you know, I really like, I just needed that to happen. Um, so and that's kind of be even harder giving feedback to people you don't know, but I guess that if you're cycling through students, because you have new students every semester and obviously you have some carryover, but that's got to give you a lot of practice with that. Yeah, I think it does. Um, and going to Protospiel and Unpub, um, places where uh, designers have come expecting to get feedback helps quite a bit. Um, I think that Sometimes you play something that um, a designer has decided is done and they're just kind of showing it to you. And if you've got feedback at that stage where they think it's finished and you've pointed out something that doesn't quite work 
in the context of the rest of the game, that can be a little bit tougher um, when they have different expectations. Right. And that too, you always have to remember, like, especially in an Udpub scenario, obviously with like, like a Grubs meetup, you know, have they played this game five times tonight, right? Like probably not. This is probably the first or second play at most that they've gotten of it. But at Udpub, you walk up to somebody on Udpub on day two, they may have played that game 20 times. Right. And, and you're only validating the feedback they didn't want. (laughs) And that's, yeah, that's, you know, I think we've all been in the position too, where you feel like a game is close to done and then you find out that it's not even nearly done. And I, um, I think that the more you design the, the less chance of that happening. Like when I was starting design numerous times, like this game is perfect. And then somebody would play it and be like, this game doesn't even function right. And they would explain all these things to me and, and it's devastating, but it's such a learning experience. Yeah. Um, I mean, making, making, I mean, mistakes isn't the right word because the process of game design, you are always iterating, but making something that doesn't work and changing it and seeing that it does actually work better now, um, that's, I think, much more valuable than finding something that works right away. That's fair. That's fair. So, so feedback, not our topic tonight, but I'm really interested (laughs) in this conversation. So we're going to keep talking about it for just a little bit. Um, So what, like, if you were going to give a handful of tips to someone who is new uh, to giving feedback, um, Mm -hmm. like, because we've talked a ton on the show about receiving feedback, but I would love as somebody who, who, who helps to develop games, like what, what, what are your tips for giving a designer, especially we'll say someone you don't know very well, feedback on their game, especially uh, to caveat when the feedback is is harder right it's not right it's, it's not like oh i changed this one little thing right it's it's critical feedback we'll say <laughs> right i think it's important to start with something that you did like about the design and if you can't find anything you liked about the design you have to question whether it's actually your place to give that feedback because sometimes a game is just not your kind of game if if the game is um something where you can't see any diamond in the rough, then you might need to take a step back yourself and realize that this isn't, this isn't the right time for you to, to help them forward. Um, so starting with that, I think, is, is one of the most important things. Um, and then I think recognizing that there are levels of things that you can tell people, small things like just indicating what part of the game seemed like it was off rather than providing your own suggestion is I think a good first step, especially when you don't know someone trying to create your own game from their starting point is not the right way to go about this. (laughs) Right. So yeah, I think, I think those are the main two things is um, starting with something that you liked and you have to have something that you like in order to, to really be valuable as, as someone to give feedback and then not trying to fix it, just trying to indicate, okay, this is this is what feels off. That's that's super super good feedback. Um, I the the one of the things that popped in my head about your first point with, I, I think we when you sit down for a game and you play it and somebody's looking for feedback, you feel like you have to give feedback, right? Like you feel like you have to. And 
I a long, long time ago, and I've t- mentioned this on the show before. I played a game by Matt and Ben, uh, Matt Pinch, uh, Matt Riddle and Ben Pinchback. Yep. Um, fantastic designers, good friends. Also fell in with Ganders. Yep. Yep. Um, uh, and uh, it was a monster truck game, and it was a real time game. And I watched a dozen people play it before me because the game went really fast, and just love it. It was a riot. Um, and I don't, I don't like real time games. I'm just really bad at them. Like I have <laughs> a lot of anxiety. I have OCD. And like those things just don't jive with making me make immediate decisions in sure. like quickly. Um, it's just not fun to me. Like it's it's just anxiety inducing. So why would I put myself in that situation? And that was a game where like it had a lot of moving parts and it was completely like doable if you were good at that. I wasn't. Uh, so I I played it and I got done and they're like, what'd you think? And I just said, I I don't know what to tell you because like I, I don't like these kind of games. Like, and I bet this is awesome. <laughs> But like, I don't want to just give you bad feedback because I couldn't tell you any way to improve this. I mean, like, not make it real time, but that's me fixing the game, right? Right. <laughs> to yeah. Make it exactly. For me. Exactly. Um, but the other thing you mentioned with, gosh, we are so guilty of this as game designers, right? Oh, for like, sure. Yeah. It's a, game, it's a tough skill to not fix it. Right? Fix it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because in the thing is, you know, I think that, like, I think, and tell me if you agree or not, like. If I'm comfortable with a person, there's no reason that I can't say, have you thought about trying it this way? Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. If if they know where you're coming from and they they know your skill set, then you start to get into the realm of not co-designers, but they know what your intentions are is to help them. Right. Yeah. I mean, then you're then you're trying to help your friend or good designer, you know, well, develop the game, right? I mean, that's um whereas, yeah, when you don't know a person, and I've seen this so many times with you know, I, I know I've been guilty of it, but I've also seen people um, do it with games where like you start to hear the feedback and you think they don't want this game. Like they don't want to play this game. Like they want to play a slightly different game um, that I don't want to design. Right. <laughs> and, like I actually, Rob, uh, the former co-host of the show, once said to someone, he had this really fun game. that It never ended up making it anywhere, but um, this person kept giving me feedback and he finally said, man, that game sounds awesome. You should go design that game because that's not this <laughs> game. Um, but I would play your game. He's like, go design it and bring it back and I'll play it. Um, but I don't want to design that game. Um, and but I do. I know that I've been guilty about it so many times in the past where you just we just as designers, we have these fix it brains. Right. Oh, for um, sure. And, and they're also, useful to apply to our own designs. <laughs> right, right. And it's also so easy to see problems and fixes in someone else's design because you have no baggage with it. You have oh, no yeah. emotion attached to it, but they sure do. Um, and a lot of times, um, you know, people know what they want out of their game, whether it's a feeling or a specific way the theme works or a, or a specific mechanic. And you very well may be pushing them away from that. And um, and not every designer is, you know, is co- confident enough, I guess is the word I'm looking for to say, no, that's, that's a bad idea for me. Like, I don't want to do that. Um, so yeah, I, that's really good feedback to be willing to just sit back and, and not try and fix it. Say I'm struggling with this. <laughs> I, you know, like playing it. Uh, yeah. So I mean, would you, do you try to just call out the issue? Like say, this is what I'm seeing as an issue in the game. Uh, you asking them like, how do you feel about that feedback? Or, you know, do have you heard this before? Yeah, I, so I kind of mentioned levels and then I got myself sidetracked from it, but 
that's kind of the starting point is just indicate, you know, this piece of the game didn't feel like it fit with everything else, or it felt like it detracted from the ideas that I was going for with the rest of the mechanics. Um, and then if they seem open to a conversation, then you can turn on your fix-it brain and be like, hey, you know, if you were interested, you could try this thing or what have you tried before? Because it's possible that they've actually tried the thing you're about to suggest and it didn't work because of some other knob that right. got turned. Yeah. So right. um, I think it's not that the conversation has to end with you pointing it out, but that you shouldn't immediately dive into fix-it mode. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. So first of all, change everything about your game. <laughs> Retheme it. It's now about gnomes. It's going to be great. Um, <laughs> so, all right. Well, that was that was a good little session there on feedback. That's really good. I always love hearing more info about that. Um, and I know that it's something that all of us designers could use more practice with giving feedback uh, and doing a good job with it. So, um, so yeah. So the next uh, thing, our real topic we're going to talk about tonight. Topic is, number two. <laughs> yes, yes. Is uh, talking about education in games, specifically science education in games, which obviously being a professor of sciencey things is <laughs> something you're very familiar with. Uh, so yeah, no, I'm in, then, uh, and then at the end you're going to pitch a game, uh, in, in that realm. So, um, yeah. So I guess where, where would you like to start talking about, uh, science education in games? What's a good launch point for us? Yeah, I think, no pun intended. <laughs> launch. I think it's good to start with recognizing that, um, as, part of the hobby game community, what I really mean when I talk about science education in games is a game that people will pick up and play, even if they aren't necessarily interested in learning the science, but that they're going to get some science built in along the way and that the mechanics are based on real science ideas. Because there are plenty of things mm -hmm. that look like games in the education world that they might just be roll and move and you're answering questions about the environment right. and, and that's fine, but right. that isn't really what I would consider to be a like game that can stand on its own feet. If, right, right. if you aren't a student who is taking that class and your teacher is having you play this role uh, and move game, um, then no one's going to pick it up. So what, what right. I, what I find interesting and I think, it is a relatively recent um, wealth of games in the um, in that area is is games that are are teaching you something kind of secretly. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. So, um, an an easy game to point at, and I'm not going to try to name too many because then I know that I'll I'll leave a lot of people out that that deserve to be mentioned. But an easy game to point at is um, Junk Orbit by Daniel Solis. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Junk Orbit by Daniel Solis, um, it actually uses the ideas of orbital mechanics and equal and opposite reactions in space. And yet you're just flinging stuff around and earning points and um, it doesn't feel like you're learning physics, but it is actually built into the mechanics of the game. And so you could... You could be able to answer 
some kind of basic questions about that kind of stuff after playing the game a couple of times. Um, I had a um, interview with Daniel on playability and we talked about Lagrange points and, and nerded out about things and like that's, oh, that's yeah, in the game, yeah, yeah. even though it's not necessarily named that. So it's kind of secret learning that's happening. Um, and that's I think awesome. that, yeah, and I think that's really valuable for for more games to to have that it's it's not necessary to be learning that science, but that they are games built on legitimate science. Well, and even like mentioning like orbital mechanics, right? Mechanics. Right? I mean, like like this this is like beautiful nature, like giving you mechanics to use as, you know, in a game, right? That you can you can gamify. Um I love that, you know, the exactly. idea of that and, and secret learning is, yeah, secret learning I think is is so good because it it makes it so that you're not, nobody wants to feel like the learning is heavy handed, right? Right. Like they don't want to feel like I'm going to play this game to learn something. <laughs> they want to play the game to have fun. And if they learn something, cool, that's great. Exactly. And so um, there's, there's countless other examples um, not necessarily science specific, but like history of science specific um, mm -hmm. that are are pretty good examples. Um, Artana Games is really good at putting those out. Yeah, um, where you actually learn a lot about the history of people that you know get mentioned in science textbooks, but now you're actually playing through something that is helping you understand them a little bit better, um, even if it's right. not the the goal of the game. You're just playing a game to earn victory points and win. And you just happen to learn that stuff along the way. Right. Right. So, um, yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. Um, what, like you said, there are a lot of games. I think genius games is another one that does quite a yeah. bit. And I don't know how, yeah. like, I, I believe they try to stick pretty true to science being, you know, accurate. Yeah. Certainly enough. a lot of their early games were, um, we're very good at kind of conveying chemistry ideas and they've branched out since then. Well, even games like compounded, uh, the old dice hate me game by Daryl Louder. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know how much like science based was in that, but like, obviously like it was the periodic table and like you needed to learn things on it to be better. Like that helped you be better at the game and you were making real compounds, real compounds. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, but it's posed in a way that sounds fun, right? I mean, I personally think the periodic table is kind of cool, <laughs> uh, but I can see why a lot of people don't because it's it's a table with a bunch of symbols and numbers and letters on it. And um, I don't yeah, know. So... It sounds like you're describing a lot of board games. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Good point. So what are... Um, so, so we've got, you know, trying to be like teaching people without being heavy handed, I think was is kind of a simple way to put it. Mm -hmm. Um you know, like if I'm a game designer and I think, well, you know, I want to find um, a science, like I want to, I want to make a game that, that's using some good science mechanics um, to educate someone. What, like, what are your suggestions in, in seeking that out, you know, beyond your own self-interest and like what, what you like about, yeah. you know? I think um, starting with seeing for whatever specific topic of science is out there, seeing what other games already exist. And I mean, certainly any theme 
shows up in plenty of games, um, whether it's quilting or bees or space. Um, mm -hmm. But making sure that the kind of real nugget of science that you want to focus your game around doesn't already exist as a game that has tried to focus on that real nugget of, of science. Right. Um, and I think the, the next step is if you aren't an expert in that particular subject, and that's perfectly fine as game designers, we, we get to learn a lot about a lot of different things. We do. Um, but consider finding somebody who's willing to talk through, um, the, the details of the science not necessarily as a full co-designer, but just brainstorming things that could work as mechanics in your game that um, would be able to be the the building blocks that you're using to create a, a new experience. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, then there's, there really are so many like, do you find it like because there's obviously tons of games about space for instance right <laughs> and most of those are garbage when it comes to science right well sure yeah my favorite oh. game of all time is race for the galaxy and i mean it's set in space <laughs> <laughs> i'm not sure how much science space is with air quotes right yeah <laughs> yeah yeah um so i mean i guess that's that's the competition though right like you're competing with with you know, fun themes like that in uh, Junk Orbit. It's been a while since the funeral, but if I remember correctly, and also knowing Daniel, it's got really nice, fun art to it. Oh yeah, for sure. Know, a whole bunch of like the sonic screwdrivers floating around in space and all of yeah, these different fantastic. callbacks to things. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, that is a really good way, I think thematically to pull people in and make it seem fun. Not that the game isn't fun, but like to make the theme feel fun again without the theme feeling like, now you're going to learn about you know something boring. I um <laughs> I, I definitely I definitely agree that that it, it comes back to not just while you're playing the game, it can't be heavy handed with the science, but even in its presentation, it really can't be trying to convince you that you will learn science by playing it because people won't pick that up. Um I mean I I teach community college students and I I love that I am probably their last science class um, that they'll have to take in college and that they have to take it because it gives <laughs> me a chance to teach them critical thinking skills and that science isn't scary and that all of this anxiety they've built up about math and science from high school can actually be alleviated and there are valuable things to learn from these fields. But what it comes back down to then is that a lot of people have some kind of leftover anxiety about things related to math and science in a way mm -hmm. that just comes from, comes from things that happened way before uh, they left school and just have kind of stuck around. Yeah, no, I definitely that you just described my feelings when I went to college uh, for math. I mean, I was, uh, science was always something I found very interesting and I was pretty good at as long as I didn't have to do math with the science. Um, but I mean, I remember in, in community college having to take um, some math classes that I should have not had to take because I should have just passed them in high school. But like it just never, I didn't have a teacher that really made it not anxiety inducing until yeah. college. Um, and he made it way easier and like I was able to do it. <laughs> yeah, that that's awesome. Great. 
And yeah. and the problem is, is a lot of people don't get that opportunity to have someone who is really trying to help fix their relationship with mm-hmm. with those topics, not just teaching them right. things, but but fixing their their outlook. Right. And it's it, it's it's hard too because like, I mean, I'm pretty good with numbers and I'm pretty good with math. And like that helps me as a game designer. But like my grades would have never shown anyone that 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 was the case, right? Um, even though like I mean I like I do all right for myself when it comes to you know <laughs> spreadsheet things and doing math and understanding things like that. Um, but yeah, so I, I I think that's that's key that you're opening that up for them. Do you ever do you ever attempt to gamify things in your class, or is, do you not cross paths with that? Yeah, I I definitely. Um... I definitely try to consider those things. I have never gone very heavy into the gamification. We do a lot of active learning and um, group activities and things like that, but but nothing that would really be considered gamification. Um, and it's not that I don't believe in it. It's just that it it doesn't work for everything. And there's there's enough right, that is true. competing. Yeah, there's enough competing things that I'm trying to be able to do in the semester um, that. In some cases, that can actually detract from the the goals of the course. That's fair. That's fair. You know, we were talking about kind of packaging and having to make the game not feel heavy handed and and, and look interesting. You know, it needs to look interesting and pop. And you know, one of the things that immediately popped into my head as a game uh, that I've not played um, because it didn't sound interesting to me <laughs> uh, was that's in the sciency realm is Loveless and Babbage. Oh, I love um, that game. <laughs> so, right? So, yeah. Um, but like, and I know at least a little bit who Loveless and Babbage are, right? I know mm-hmm. what it's probably going to be about, but that game just didn't really seem interesting to me. And I'm into that stuff. So like, you know, or when I think of like a Tesla versus Edison, I think it's Tesla versus Edison. Again, another game I've heard very good things about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know a lot of the story of Tesla versus Edison because I found it interesting. Um but I can see why, like, I'm thinking of Loveless and Babbage as a very specific thing, because if you don't know who those two people are. And they right? are much less well known than some of the other than, figures. Yeah, than Tesla that have versus games. Edison, yep. right? Like, most people have heard of a Tesla coil <laughs> and they know who Edison is. Like, so if they sure. know nothing else, uh, it's at least interesting, right? Um, now I'm so just I guess, picturing Edison, like, fighting against an actual Tesla coil, and that sounds pretty awesome. It'd be cool. That was one of my favorite things about the uh, old video game Red Alert 2 was that if you were the Russians, you got to have a Tesla coil, (laughs) uh, like these Tesla towers that would like zap people. And you had tanks that actually had Tesla coils on them that would just zap people. It was was pretty sweet. That's pretty sweet. Um, I mean, not that we have any of those things, but it was it was cool. Uh, They also had psychics. So, you know, I mean, whatever. (laughs) Um, Some science, some um, not. But yeah, I mean, you're right. right. Lovelace and Babbage, um, it, it does in some ways self-select its audience that Mm -hmm. if you're browsing a game store um, and you pick it up, it does market itself as being very focused on those characters and their experiences and their story. And then when you look into the mechanics, it's, it's speed math. And I love that, but it is not everybody's game. And, (laughs) and, um, I think, and I'm sure there's a lot of the publishers, the people who care about all the money, I think that's not a problem if you've limited your target audience to people that 
will right. like your game. Right. <laughs> Which is that? Is that an Artana game? Um, or I don't. Maybe not. Whatever company it is, though, I know that they are known for doing games like that. Right. So yes. Yeah. Um. So yes, they they have an audience, and when that and that audience is going to be jazzed about that game. Um. But I, you know, I think about your average like. Well, see, and that's a bad example. Say your average person walking around Gen Con, but like, if you look <laughs> at the statistics of people at Gen Con, like mo- more of them th- at Gen Con than your average like person in the public know who Loveless and Babbage are. Right. right. That's like, right. Um, so, but anyways, I just was curious about that because that kind of like breaks some of the rules we're talking about for good accessibility. But I, I think that, and I don't know if you agree, but I think that they make up for it by saying we're a publisher that does this. You know what to expect from us. Yeah. So. And I think that goes a long way. I think that um, it isn't necessarily healthy for all publishers to try to have games that work for all people that agreed. If you try to make a game that you want every single person ever to like, you're you're going to make something that is okay for all of those people because they have such competing interests and abilities and um all of this and so you don't you don't necessarily want to make something that works for everybody like there are games that tons of people like outside of the hobby world you know monopoly is one that we we tend to make fun of but it has a lot of reach and uno has a lot of reach and those games are accessible to huge audiences because they don't really have much else going on that they're trying to do right right i will say uno is a good game i will always believe that uno is a good game i mean like it's just a really well-balanced game um monopoly i have my arguments but chris misho uh from flip the table i'm not allowed to speak ill of monopoly uh because if he hears this then i'll get hate mail so um (laughs) but yeah i i think that yeah on that note yes we shouldn't design games that everyone will like because then every game is going to be apples to apples slash cards against humanity right and that's i mean that's what you get when you design games that you want the widest range of people to like right um, I mean, Cards Against Humanity has a reach that is actually shocking to me because people who wouldn't be comfortable talking about the things on those cards are comfortable playing the game. Um, and I'd like to point out that I still have never played Cards Against Humanity, um, mostly because I hate <laughs> I think that's apples an to achievement. apples. <laughs> right? Achievement I unlocked. I hate apples to apples. And uh, so Cards Against Humanity just never like really spoke to me. And I, and I just never happened to be at a place. I, I think I would have played it if somebody had been there, but like, like with it, but nobody sure. ever was. So I never did. Um, but the idea, yeah, I definitely see what you mean by that. Um, I, I was just thinking about the, like, um, it, even if Loveless and Babbage isn't the type of game that's trying to teach you something other than like, Hey, here's some history about these people and then do speed math. Um, <laughs> it's still, it could feel like that on yeah. the outset if you just look at it. Um, but that's, that's a fair point that, you know, I mean, you're really trying to focus on your specific audience and, and with the hobby game market growing so much, there's a lot of room for that, right? I mean, there's so much room, uh, for, there are so many people who are finding their way into the hobby and are now looking Mm -hmm. for games that speak to them and having as diverse a set of games as possible is going to be key to, to people coming back over and over. 
Absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, something we've talked about on the show a lot is how that, you know, works into diverse voices in general, right? In the community. And that's so, so important um, because we didn't have that for a long time or we didn't, well, we didn't have enough of it, right? And we still don't have enough of it, but we're at least on a trajectory that's getting us in the right direction. Um, yeah, quicker, as an industry, we're having the conversations that should have been had for a long time. Yes, yes. And and sadly, there is still a strong portion of the industry that is really upset about that, really upset about that. Um, I mean, it's not unlike the, the country in general, I guess. Yeah, but, yeah, exactly. Um, it's just kind of yeah. a reflection of the society at, at its current point. Right. It's hard to see that in gamers, I guess, because, you know, uh, because the gamers that I know and love aren't like that. And right. so when you see that um, with with a community that's so welcome and open, you know, in general, right, mm-hmm. with without the outliers who are awful, um, when you see like, like uh, there are some groups on Facebook that I've found um, mostly just so that I can continually report their posts. Um <laughs> But um, everybody's got to do their own work, right? You got to do something to help. Um, exactly. But like that are just awful humans. And oh, man, it just makes you really sad. Um, so, yeah. So that was a depressing little jaunt there. Um, but yeah, necessary, though. Necessary. So, yep. Like any before we talk about uh, before we talk about uh, the game you're going to pitch, um, what anything else we really want to you want to put in there about making games when it comes to science education? Um, I think, I think one thing I just want people to, to consider is that um, science doesn't have to be scary. And if you've wanted to make a game with a science related theme, you should do it. Uh, And Mm -hmm. especially if you start to get others to, to give you feedback, people who are in the science field that you're in and people who are gamers that have no interest in science, getting those different sets of feedback will help make your game something that will find its target audience, but also um, not not lose people who might really enjoy the, the um, experience. That's fantastic. And I think that that's, I think everything you've talked about tonight is also, if you strip away the idea of it being just science or just education, the other place where you can really apply a lot of this is in any simulation game, right? Mm-hmm. Any game where you're attempting to simulate something from real life, all of these are good tips for that. Um, it just kind of popped into my head as we're talking about it. I, so yeah, so everyone should keep that in mind as they're thinking about that too. Um, before we move on to the pitch, there's something that I thought of as you were talking when you were talking about science doesn't have to be scary. You were tweeting recently about your class being super concerned uh, that an asteroid is <laughs> oh going to gosh. hit Earth. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And it was cracking me up. Oh, um, gosh. Yeah. 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 That's, I thought that was, and I heard that the asteroid, is it Apophis? How does Apophis. it pronounce? Yeah. Apophis. Apophis. So for, it was for the listeners. Up, so, uh oh. Right. <laughs> for the listeners who just want a little bit of context, um, so I, I teach astronomy and physics classes at Grand Rapids Community College. And um, all of my lectures are online this semester. So we have, um, pretty robust discussion boards, um, especially for astronomy. And um, I have I have posts that students can respond to, but I also welcome them to just create their own topic um, to discuss. And one student brought up an article that they had found that was about um, the asteroid Apophis and how it has a non-zero chance of hitting in the year 2068. 
And that that was the part that cracked me up is because this idea that that is breaking news right now um, <laughs> right. when when there's so many other important science related things that we have to deal with as a society. Um, but uh, yeah, Apophis was supposed to hit in 2029 and we're safe there. So you can take a deep breath. It was supposed to hit in 2036. It's not going to hit then either. So the next chance that is not zero is 2068. So just mark and it on guess your calendar. Guess when else it's not going to hit? 2068. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> with with the way the Earth is going right now, we may welcome that comet or that asteroid. Is it an asteroid? Comet? Asteroid. A asteroid. Yeah. yeah. Asteroid. We will welcome that in 2068. Like, I mean, that might be like, you know what? Who knows? Come on Who knows? down. <laughs> um. Anyways, I just thought that was funny, and it occurred to me as you were saying, science was scary. That I remember wanting <laughs> okay, to. Okay, sometimes that up. science is scary. That is true. Yes, <laughs> I mean years from now, right? Actually, science is can, climate change is very scary. But, yes. Uh, yeah, I think that was that the point of my tweet. People, so, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think that was the point of my tweet is that they should probably be a little bit more scared of cl climate change than Apophis. Right. 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 Yeah. So you uh, have a game you're going to pitch. Uh, and all I know is that it's probably sciencey. It so is probably sciencey. I'm excited to hear about it. <laughs> so uh, I will go ahead. Uh, give us the pitch. Perfect. So um, my largest and longest-lasting game design um, is called Stars Inc., and it is about stellar evolution. So the different things that to happen to stars of low mass, high mass. And so there's a lot of science built in, but the idea is it's it's a bit of an engine builder um, kind of game where you're actually creating stars on a board that represents what's called the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram in astronomy. And you're watching these stars evolve over time. They can create planets, which will give you resources. Uh, they can become white dwarfs, which is what our sun will eventually do and um, score you points. Or they might explode and get you some of the really high mass elements that are necessary to then create more planets. Um, and so it's it's a really interesting game of balancing what kind of things you want to make and how you want to use your resources in a way that um, mirrors what real stars go through over time. That's really interesting. So you, from the player's point of view, you are, with the name Stars Inc., I'm assuming you are like some sort of beings that are yeah, attempting the, to create these stars the, for profit. The, backs, the backstory has evolved over time. And there used to be like alien races and spe uh, species that have different powers. Um, but I've kind of backed off on that. Um, and you are just kind of manipulating the large scale forces of gravity and and time and whatnot i'm a little reminded of the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy those people that make the yeah planets. magrathea exactly um, yes yes <laughs> i was like it's with an m but yes yes uh putting their their uh their face or something like in a glacier i think exactly. it was or their name yep. yes yes so um so how much of of the game like is it it's all based on accurate science like when it comes to stars and formations of planets and solar systems and such? Yeah, for sure. So um, I think even in my in my small pitch, it did probably sound a little more heavy-handed science than, um, than it should once I get more of those non-science um, development hands on it. But um, 
The the game board itself is based on one of the most important diagrams in astronomy that helps astronomers learn how the temperatures and brightnesses of stars relate to each other and change over the um, life cycle of a star. And the fact that low mass stars don't explode and high mass stars do, that's all directly um, related to real astronomy and real stars as well. Um, and so there's there's a lot that you'll actually learn if you play that you don't have to pay attention to. You can just be scoring right, the points right. and winning the game. But if I then handed you the same questions that I hand my astronomy students at the end of the semester, you might actually have a better sense of how to answer some of them related to that particular topic. That's really cool. Yeah. How does the how does the time scale work in the game? Because obviously we're dealing with like ridiculous timescales uh yes yeah for sure so that's in in one way one of the simplifications but in another one of the things that is trying to be somewhat accurate to the relative um lifetimes so really low mass stars um lower mass than our sun if they formed at some point they will not have had a chance to explode as you get to a low enough mass they're all expected to live longer than the current age of the universe. So on the game board, they just sit and they exist. There's no evolution that happens because it happens on such longer scales. They just sit and they're mm -hmm. a great place to have planets, which is also where a lot of our discovered planets actually um, form around these small red uh, dwarf stars. Oh, okay. And then the medium mass stars like our sun, you actually learn that they become red giants and they go to the part of the board that indicates that they're bright but cold. And then they become white dwarfs, which is what our sun will eventually do. So after Apophis doesn't hit in 2068, if you wait five <laughs> billion more years, now we have to worry about the sun um, expanding, but then um, Eating becoming Earth. a small white dwarf. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. And then uh, becoming a small white dwarf. And then that track is longer to indicate that there's more time that has to pass. And the highest mass stars have the shortest track because they live for the shortest period of time. Um, in some cases a thousandth the amount of time that the sun uh, lives for. Right, right. Yeah, there's, um, what's the star right now that's doing, that's like, uh, it's a big star. Um, you might be thinking uh, of Betelgeuse. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. That's like, <laughs> that's like, it's newer than our sun, but it's already like, I mean, I guess it may have already exploded, right? Like, and we just don't know it yet. I mean, sure, yeah, it's that's a time, mind yeah. about. The cool thing about astronomy is the further back in time um, you want to look, you just have to look at objects that are farther away. So it's kind of like the archaeology right, right. of the sky. Um, yeah, it's... Betelgeuse was big in the news in the last year or two because it was doing a lot of weird things. Um, but we don't. Yeah, it was like think fading that... out. Like yeah. like yeah, and so I I lost track of the most up to date science. Um, but I think the idea is is it it gave off a lot of its outer layers that became a lot dimmer because they were getting colder. Uh, and then mm -hmm. that was kind of blocking our view of it. And it was a weird, cool thing that we don't see a lot of stars do in real time. Right. right. And so that was, yeah. that was what made things so exciting. <laughs> Very cool. Um, but yeah, no, that game sounds super interesting. I would love to try that sometime if you have it in TTS or something like that, that would be really fun. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's right up my alley. So I like astronomy <laughs> and that sort of thing. And I'm geeky about that as well. So I don't know a ton of stuff about it. Like, I mean, I know like 
yeah, I don't. I watch a lot of stuff about it, but I don't. Wouldn't, wouldn't say that I know a lot about it. I'm but very see, interested the, in it. That's the thing about the secret learning is you don't have to know right. anything to go into the game right, and right. be able to be successful in the victory conditions, and then you just learn right. some stuff right. along the way. Yeah, and I mean, when you really think about it, every game has a conceit of how you're trying to score points and do something right. And in a lot of games, it is some sort of tabley type thing or some way that you're scoring right and so this is just using a science thing to do the exact same thing exactly um which to anyone that's seen that before is like oh wow like i know what this is this is great so <laughs> exactly very cool well thank you so much for joining me tonight and chatting about all of this um this is really this is a fun conversation i appreciated it yeah and now now we have a chance to um talk to each other again while not being recorded <laughs> Yes. Yes. Go Michigan. Um, yes. Yes. Um, so, uh, is there anything you want to plug or anything like anything you worked on or anything out there right now? Um, it's okay if there's not, but I always like to double check. Yeah. I, I definitely have a lot of, uh, designs that are sitting at near finished. Um, but with the pandemic, my job changed quite dramatically in the last year. And so that's all been put on the back burner, quite a that's far fair. back yeah. back burner. <laughs> yes, yes. But um, yes. If, if you're interested in talking with me uh, on Twitter, I'm at CGSUnit. And um, that alone has its own science-related um, backstory that ah, I, think I've, I think I've mentioned on a previous podcast. But CGS is a set of units that is different than the um, standard international meters, kilograms, seconds. So it's centimeters, oh. grams, and seconds, CGS. Oh, wow. Because I, I, I follow you on Twitter, and I always wondered what that was. <laughs> You're like, know. it's just okay. some letters put together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought maybe it was like your like, hip-hop group or something, like CGS unit, like I didn't know. Oh, there you go. You know? See, now yeah. I'm going to have to make a science-based hip-hop group. There's nothing wrong with that. I think that's, that's a fantastic idea. <laughs> um, all right. Well, hey, listeners, we appreciate you joining us tonight. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can go to Building the Game Podcast at gmail. Uh, buildingthegamepodcast.com. You can email us at buildingthegamepodcast at gmail.com. You can call us at 770-TELL-BTG. Find us on the Twitter at PodcastBTG, at J.A. Slingerland. And as Lauren said, she is at CGS Unit. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook, iTunes, and all the other places. Uh, until next time, good night. Good night. Building the game with Jason and friends, with Jason and friends. Building the game, building the game with Jason and friends, with Jason and friends. Dial 770 Hotel BTG. Please don't use the email. <laughs>